Good morning again. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 46. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Psalm 46. If you uh, haven't been here uh, for a few weeks, uh, you may not know that we're working through uh, some of the Psalms. We're not going through every Psalm, uh, but we are working through about uh, 23 of them or so. Uh, so quite a few. Um, and uh, so week after week, we're looking at a different Psalm in uh, the Bible. Uh, the Psalms are a book of songs and a book of prayers in the Old Testament. Uh, they were uh, prayers offered up to God, but intended to be sung by the people of God so that we could offer up our prayers together. And this week we look at Psalm 46. Uh, before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you uh, as uh, the lover of our soul and as the one who cares for us and delights in us and sings over us and watches over us and shepherds us. And Father, we come thanking you for Jesus, uh, for the gift of your Son, for uh, the life that we have in him. We come thanking you for your Spirit who enlivens us and opens our hearts and minds that we might understand your gospel, understand your word. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now, that you would uh, enlighten our minds uh, to understand, soften our hearts to receive and believe what you have for us in Psalm 46. We pray that you would speak to us this morning uh, clearly and by your spirit, that you would work these truths into our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamot, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Natural disasters, race struggles, economic uncertainty, Cold wars, culture wars, trade wars. The disasters which constantly threaten us seem to be innumerable. 
I listened to a, a weekly news podcast, and one of the show hosts, almost no matter what the topic, will often come back to the idea, and this is how the world will end. <laughs> He's joking, slightly. It's normally a conversation about either the latest technology or world politics. But either way, uh, the end of the world scenarios don't seem that implausible to him. At times, our world seems fragile and ready to tear itself apart. Sometimes it's not so much the big world out there, but our world that is falling apart. Jobs are lost, loved ones die, relationships break down. Sometimes it seems as if nothing is stable, nothing secure, nothing solid. We have no place to stand and catch our breaths. But maybe it's not the big world out there or even the little world of our immediate circumstances. Sometimes it's the interior world of our hearts. The world is quiet and peaceful, but our heart rages. We feel unstable, unsettled, distracted, confused, hopeless, and helpless. The roaring of the seas or the roaring of the nations or the roaring of our hearts, right? Who will quiet, protect, and defend us. Well, Psalm 46 speaks into this, and yet not quite how I first expected. I love it when I'm surprised by Scripture. I actually misunderstood Psalm 46 when I began preparation uh, to preach on it this week. Uh, verse 10 is, is kind of a well-known verse in the Psalms. It says, Be still and know that I am God. And I've always taken that to mean something like, There, there. Don't be afraid. God's got this. Be still. But that's not at all what it means. David could have said that, but he didn't. And Psalm 46 doesn't. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to be still and know that he is God? Well, uh, you'll have to pay attention and find out. <laughs> Our outline this morning, uh, which you can find on the back of your bulletin, is God's presence makes the church fearless. God's presence makes the city glad. God's presence engenders the nation's worship. Therefore, stop and acknowledge that Yahweh is God. First, God's presence makes the church fearless. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am often afraid. And I mention that a lot because it's true. It's not wrong to be afraid, by the way. Uh, I, I think because Scripture exhorts us over a hundred times not to fear, that sometimes we think fear in and of itself is sinful. Uh, that's not actually true. The question is never simply, are you afraid? Uh, but what do you do with your fear? There are plenty of reasons to be afraid, of course. And Psalm 46 doesn't start small. It begins with the earth giving way and the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea. Now, the earth and the mountains are about the most stable things that you can think of. And so when they begin to give away, you know that you're in trouble. The sea, on the other hand, is a picture of instability and chaos. Its waters roar, even rage and foam and swell. And so when the waters of chaos begin to overtake the stability of the mountains, life as we know it is coming to an end. 
unlike many psalms, there's actually not a hint of what's going on in the psalmist's life. The psalmist doesn't refer to any specific events, but we get the point. His world is being turned upside down. What was dependable and reliable and trustworthy has just given way. And what happens when everything you trust and everything you know and everything you depend on suddenly is upended and undone? Well, we get scared. Right? Where will we turn? What hope do we have? Whatever we thought would help us just collapsed. And so fear rises in our chests. But not for the psalmist. Why not? Well, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God, the psalmist says, is our refuge, a place in which we hide, find safety and security, a place to weather the storm. God is our strength. Right? The moment we feel that we can go on no longer, we turn to him and find what we need to take the next step. God is a very present help in trouble. He's not far away, right? He, he's not on the other side of the world. He, he doesn't have to take the next flight to Chicago and then pick up a rental car down to Champaign. God is a very present help in trouble. He is right here to help in our time of need. The psalmist is confident in God's presence. He expresses trust in the presence and protection of his father, even when his world is falling apart. Now, notice for a second the word uh, our in verse 1 and we in verse 2. Who does the psalmist mean? Well, the sons of Korah wrote this psalm. Uh, they were from the tribe of Levi. They were singers in the temple. And so these psalms were written, therefore, for corporate worship, right? They were written for worship in the temple. They were written for God's gathered people, for the church, the our and the we refer to the gathered people of God who have gathered in the temple to worship him. And I should point out that this is really only the first hint in the psalm that God is not a refuge for everyone. God is our refuge. Therefore, we will not fear. But this, of course, raises the question, am I in? Is he my refuge? Is he your refuge? Now, there are certain ways of misunderstanding what Scripture teaches here about God being our refuge and strength. And so the, the best thing to do is to go to Jesus. If anyone could say, God is my refuge and strength, it was him. I mean, Jesus was among the people of God. In fact, he was the only one who fully lived out what it means to be God's child. But I wonder if you've considered the fact that the earth did tremble for Jesus. He had more enemies than most, right? He was betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends. He was falsely accused and arrested and tried and falsely convicted and beaten and mocked and then nailed to a cross. Where was God his refuge and strength then? In fact, Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where's the present help in trouble? And then he died. 
And Scripture tells us the earth itself shook when he did. Where was God when the earth shook for Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches us that Jesus went to the cross for us. That is, we deserved God's punishment, his wrath, but Jesus bore it in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. We deserve for God to turn his back on us. And so Jesus came and he took on human skin and he became our scapegoat. And the father turned his back on him instead. The father was absent from Jesus on the cross. The father was absent in Jesus' time of suffering and pain for the very purpose that he might always be an ever-present help for us in our times of suffering and pain. See, paradoxically, we can know that God will not leave us because he abandoned Jesus in our place. You might say, well, well, I don't deserve God's presence. I don't deserve his help. And that's true, but Jesus did, and he took our place that we might have his. Such was his love for us. And so now we can say with the psalmist, God is our refuge and strength. Not because I deserve it, but because Jesus did. And so he's my very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. His presence makes us fearless even when the world is falling apart. Now, I would hesitate to tell a fearful person, therefore, you shouldn't fear. That tends to just add guilt to fear. So what would I say? I might say, you don't need to fear. It's a little bit different. You don't have to fear. God is our refuge and strength. And yet there's more. The second point, God's presence makes the city glad. Being fearless versus fearful in face of trouble is one thing, but the psalmist takes it a step further. He says that he is glad. Verse 4, he says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And let me ask, when you're in the midst of troubles or in the midst of trials, what do you have to be glad about? Sometimes people say things like, well, at least you have your health. Or if it's your health that's going, they say, at least you have your loved ones. Or at least you have, but what if you don't? What if all seems lost? What, what if everything is failing? What if the earth is shaking and the mountains are falling? Then what? In those days, water was a life or death supply. And I guess it's a life or death supply in every age, but it was a little more obvious in those days. They couldn't just go and turn on the tap. Especially when you were surrounded by enemies in your city, if a city had no supply of fresh water, or if it had a supply of fresh water, it could hold out. If it had no supply of fresh water, death or surrender was inevitable. When the Israelites sang these words in the temple, they were standing in Jerusalem, the city of God. But one commentator points out that, that actually a, a literal water supply was often a problem in Jerusalem. When they were sieged, water was a problem. And so the psalmist is not likely singing about literal water. He's not singing about a literal river or literal streams. And of course, even if he was, verse 5 clearly applies that imagery not to the presence of water in their midst, but to the presence of God. 
Yahweh's presence refreshes the city. The Lord's presence makes her glad. Glad why? Because whatever enemies may be at the gate, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Again, if your world is falling apart, if everything you have trusted has left you or abandoned you, if all of your hopes have just been dashed upon the rocks of reality, if you lose a job or your house or a child, if you're the victim of some act of violence and your sense of safety and security is lost, the psalmist is saying you can be glad. Not because your circumstances are what you want them to be. Not because something horrible hasn't happened or isn't about to happen, but because God is with you in the midst of it. But you might say, well, look at the enemies at the gate. How can God be with us in this? And by the way, wasn't Jerusalem destroyed? The city of God was abandoned by him. How does that fit into this picture? I mean, are the psalmist's hopes in vain? Was the psalmist wrong? to put his trust in God's presence. You see, as you read through the Old Testament, God did abandon Jerusalem. Ezekiel even has this vision of God getting up and leaving the temple. Why did he do that? Well, because of Israel's sin. She abandoned him by serving other gods, and so he abandoned her by giving her up to her enemies. God's justice is, is real and right and good and just. But even as God brought justice, he had plans for compassion. Isaiah says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you in. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Psalm 30 generalizes this. It says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you notice this mention of, of mourning? It, it's come up twice now. Uh, Psalm 46, verse 5 says, God will help her when morning dawns. And Psalm 30, verse 5 says, joy comes with the morning. What is it about the morning? It's possible that the psalmist is thinking back to the Exodus. Uh, in the Exodus from Egypt, God's people faced the raging sea in front of them and the army of Pharaoh behind them. God parts the sea and they pass through. But when does Israel's decisive victory come? Uh, you may remember the Egyptian army actually follows them into the sea. But God has Moses stretch out his hand over the sea one more time. And Exodus 14, 27 says, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. It's the same language here in Psalm 46. And as the Egyptians fled into it, into the sea, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. See, their victory came when morning dawned. You probably know the saying, right, that it's always darkest before the dawn. And uh, while I don't think that saying is literally true, it makes a powerful point. And why would God so often let things get worse and worse only to save in the end? I mean, he could have brought Israel out of Egypt with, without the army of Pharaoh following. 
He could have brought Israel out of Egypt without them having to cross the Red Sea. But he took them to that point until things were hopeless and lost. And then he saved them. Why would God do that? Can I offer three reasons? Uh, one is, I think, that we are so self-reliant. God wants to show us actually how helpless we really are. To break us of our pride and our self-sufficiency. And so he lets it get to the point where we, where we realize, no, I can't do this. I can't get out of this. No, no human resources are enough for me to get out of this mess. Second, God is so powerful, right? He allows trouble in our life in part, in part, that he might save us from them and demonstrate his saving power. Now, if you think that seems cruel or self-serving, let me offer a third suggestion. An 11th hour rescue not only brings God greater glory, but they also bring us more joy. In, uh, in behavioral economic theory, uh, there's this idea of, of loss aversion. I don't study behavioral economics and uh, have no real interest to, but this idea is interesting. Uh, it teaches that losing something brings twice as much pain as gaining the same thing would bring joy. I have no idea how they figure these things out, uh, but that's what they say. And here's actually the payoff for us. Being saved out of the mouth of the lion brings more joy than if there's no lion at all. Rescue brings more joy than simply maintaining the status quo. This is actually similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If I might summarize at least part of what Paul is saying there, present sorrow feeds future joy. And so 11th hour rescues break us of our self-reliance. They demonstrate the power and the goodness of God as he steps in to make things right. And then bring joy to us, both now as God provides for us against all odds and in the future as we await that final rescue to come, right, the resurrection from the dead. Now, maybe you don't like any of these reasons, and that's fine, I guess, but the fact remains that God tends to send help when morning dawns. And remember, this is not just something that he, quote, does to us. This is something he did for us. Remember Jesus, there on the cross, accused, convicted, mocked, abandoned. How can God be with him? For a brief moment, I deserted you, Isaiah says. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face. But there was no 11th hour rescue. Jesus died and was buried. <coughs> Weeping may tarry for the night, Psalm 30 says. Jesus was not rescued last minute. The Father abandoned him completely in his hour of need. That is the judgment that we deserved and he received. But with great compassion, I will gather you with everlasting love. I will have compassion on you. Joy comes with the morning. And so early in the morning on the first day of the week, God raised Jesus from the dead. God helped him when morning dawned. 
This is really what secures our hope in a God who will not abandon us. Not just that he abandoned Jesus in our place on the cross, though that is true, but then when all hope was truly lost, there was no hope of human rescue, no resuscitation, right? No, no taking him down from the cross and healing his wounds. When all hope was lost, God rescued him from the snare of death. He did not abandon his soul to, to the grave. And Scripture teaches that if you belong to Christ, the Father will not abandon your soul either. Will you go through trials and troubles? Absolutely, of course you will. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But Jesus pours out his spirit like rivers of living water and promises to be with you always. He will never leave you or forsake you. And though you go into the valley of the shadow of death, the sun will rise and dawn will come and joy comes with the morning. And, and what that means is, right, even if the worst uh, you fear comes to pass, even when death itself knocks on your door, even though you die and are buried in the grave, death does not have the final word. As Jesus rose from the dead, so we will rise. This is the Christian hope. Not death and heaven, but resurrection and joy on the last day. When heaven and earth become one and God dwells with his people forever. When morning dawns on the darkness of the present age and the new day of the new creation comes. That is our hope. The Bible says of the church, right, that the Jerusalem above is our mother. And that on the last day, the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. And God will dwell with us and wipe away every tear. That is our hope. God's presence makes the city glad. Wiping away our tears. Now, as God dwells with us in our midst by his spirit presently, but even more so on the last day when we will see him whom our heart loves face to face. Now, not all are glad, even in this psalm, right? Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. Right? There is a judgment coming. And while the nations rage, which interestingly enough is the same word as roar in verse 3, the sea roars and the nations rage, they also totter. Totter there is the same word for be moved in verse 2 and verse 5. So however much the enemies of God are arrayed against him and shake their fists, they are ready to fall. Right? Their foot is firmly planted on slippery places. And the moment God utters his voice, the whole world will be shaken. Which really brings us to our next point. Point three, God's presence engenders the nation's worship. You know, when I look at, at world politics, I sometimes wonder where the next wor world war will break out. What nation will be provoked just one too many times? Uh, will it be the U.S.? Will it be Russia or Iran or North Korea or China or something we just completely don't expect? Jesus said that there would be wars and rumors of wars, and there are. But the psalmist says, verse 8, come. Behold the works of the Lord. Now, some people think that these uh, last few verses are purely eschatological. That is, that they're purely looking forward to the end to come. 
And it's easy to see why. Uh, the word behold is frequently used in the prophets for seeing a vision. It's as if the psalmist is saying, come, picture this. See what's going to happen. But then again, right, just, just look at what is actually said in verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He has made wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. These verses promise peace. But look how it comes. One commentator says, although the outcome is peace, the process is judgment. The reassuring words, he makes wars cease, are set in the context not of a gentle persuasion, but of a world devastated and forcibly disarmed, breaking the bow, shattering the spear, and burning the chariot with fire. God quiets the chaos by bringing desolation. It reminds me of that picture in Revelation of the return of Jesus coming riding on a white horse in Revelation 19 where we're told that his eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Quoting Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name, written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, whatever these images mean, whatever exactly is going to happen, whatever it will look like, they at least mean this. God is going to put an end to all opposition to him and to his people. One day there will be no more threat, no more violence, no more trials, no more darkness, no more tears. Everything wrong will be undone, and death itself will be no more. There will be no fear, because there will be no reason to fear. And what will be the result? Well, verse 10, God says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Or as Paul put it in Philippians 2, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted among the nations. Jesus has been exalted in the earth. See, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, whether willingly today or unwillingly. Whether willingly right now as one worships at the feet of Jesus or unwillingly on the last day as one of his defeated enemies. He will be exalted among the nations. Jesus will be acknowledged among all peoples. Which brings us to our final point. Therefore, stop and acknowledge that Yahweh is God. Be still and know that I am God. What does that phrase mean? I used to mistake it for kind of a soothing of a scared child. There is a, a comforting psalm like that in the book of Psalms, Psalm 131. Uh, psalm 131 in its entirety reads like this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. There is a quiet rest in our Father's care, a stillness. But that is not what the words of verse 10 mean. And let me show, show you what verse 10 means. Turn to Mark 4. We read it earlier. At that time, the disciples uh, were with Jesus in the boat on the sea. And a great storm arose, and waves were crashing into the boat. Mountains themselves were not being moved into the heart of the sea, but the boat was beginning to fill with water. And Jesus is taking a nap. And the disciples wake him up and say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? God, don't you care about us? Are you asleep in heaven? Don't you understand what we're going through? And Jesus wakes up and rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. Be still and know that I am God. That is what be still and know that I am God means here in, verse, uh, in, in Psalm 46. It means stop all your raging. Stop your roaring. Stop your crazed, selfish indulgence. Stop trying to rule your own world. Stop trying to live as if your will is supreme and you are God. Peace. Be still. Stop and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God is a command to the nations in Psalm 46. A command to those outside the people of God. Again, every knee will bow. And the only question is when. Of course, the end of Mark 4, the story goes like this. Jesus says to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Jesus is in the, boat, in the boat. There's no need to fear. Whatever storms may be raging, whatever worlds may be toppling, whatever mountains may be falling, whatever nations may be tottering, God is in the city. Jesus is in the boat. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And the disciples are filled with even greater fear. But this time, not of the wind and the waves, but of Jesus. And they say to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Yes, who is this? This is Jesus, the Lord, the King of heaven and earth. He is Emmanuel, God with us, our refuge, our strength, our fortress. God's presence makes the church fearless as Jesus dwells with his people. God's presence makes the city glad as he pours out on us his spirit like rivers of living water, God's presence engenders the nation's worship. Therefore, stop and acknowledge that Yahweh is God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us. Teach us. Teach us to know that you are God, that you rule the nations, that whatever mountains may be toppling, that you are with us. You are our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. And even if the worst should come to pass in this life, you will be with us. And we have the hope of the resurrection 
that as Jesus rose, so we will rise. Let that be our hope now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.